worthy in every way of our worship. It's what we came to do today, and your worship didn't just stop, you understand? We open the word, and we worship through the word. By doing that, I want to take you to Jeremiah chapter 46, and uh, if you're on your way there, I'll uh, lead us into our sort of introduction of the text. I read something this week in World Magazine. I read of a small problem that happened in the Netherlands. According to World Mag, the Dutch military bought 1,600 trucks to haul eight-foot containers that would be used to fortify the country's defenses. But upon closer inspection of the trucks, the government announced that the trucks are slightly taller than the legal limit on the roads of the Netherlands, making them illegal. You see, the sovereign nation did not plan very well, did they? They bought their supplies, and then they realized, oh, we can't even do this by our own rules. We call them a sovereign nation. We call nations on their own in the world sovereign nations. And all of these sovereign nations are going to do stuff like this. But what we know is that our sovereign God does not. He never contradicts himself. He doesn't do things that violate his own principles or rules. They don't violate his own character. Our sovereign God's work carries no such contradictions. As we begin to walk through these next chapters, this is really the conclusion of the book of Jeremiah, concludes with all these words against the nations. That's our title for the sermon today, a word for the nations. Today, it's Egypt from chapter 46. Jeremiah has been sent, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, God says to him, I have set you this day over whom or what? Not just Judah, not just the people of God, not just, not just Israel. No, he says, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, but then to build and to plant. See, as a representative of God, Jeremiah was sent to preach the truth of God over these nations. It's not just about the exile in Babylon. It is about what is coming globally. To get us into chapter 46, I want you to recall where we have been these past several chapters. You recall we talked about the old man, the old flesh. As we walk through the story of the people uh, fighting against the will of God, as Jeremiah told them, you need to stay under Babylon's rule. You need to submit to them, and I will show you mercy if you do this, because this is the punishment that I chose to bring on you. But they rejected that, and they set their faces, you recall, toward the false security of Egypt. Today, we hear a word for Egypt, a word for Egypt. There are at least two different messages in our text for today. The first one in chapter 46, beginning at verse 2 up to 
verse 12. This is a message that was delivered in the time of an attack by Babylon against Egypt. It's 605 B.C. So this is really before the exile or the attacks against Judah started happening. But this initial um, sermon was preached to show uh, God was going to be judging Egypt. The people of Babylon, they, they took a city called Carchemish. You'll see there in verse 2, Carchemish was a place where the military of Egypt was stationed and they thought they were strong. And when the people of Babylon, the king of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar wasn't even the king at this point, he led the people to attack that city and they took that city. So this first sermon has to do with that attack, but then there's another sermon here. It relates to an attack that happened over 35 years later, about 570, maybe 568, 67 BC. And you remember, this is long after the remaining Judeans fled to Egypt in their hardened disobedience to God. If you look there in verse 13, it says the word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah, the prophet, about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. And then he goes into the places where the people have fled. Throughout these verses, throughout these chapters, we're going to continue to see God's sovereign rule over the nations and Jeremiah's preaching that spoke of this rule. If you look with me, chapter 46, we'll just read these first couple of verses and then we will pray, continue. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. About Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, in which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Let's stop here and pray. Father, we again recognize that we need your help this morning. Understand your word to see Jesus, to be transformed into his likeness. Do these things that you can only do, Father. By the work of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The theme this morning possibly a continuing theme throughout these chapters. Amid God's announcements of worldwide judgment, redemption echoes loudly. Amid God's announcements of worldwide judgment, redemption echoes loudly. There's one writer, thinker, Jeffrey Arthurs, Arthurs that tells us that preaching in its very essence is simply reminding he argues that we are a very forgetful people. So he says preaching, the purpose of preaching is to remind you again and again and again of the same truths. Kyle and I were talking this morning, you know, opening the word of God so often is like a broken record. You can imagine Jeremiah's ministry, same thing over and over again, nothing new. The kings come to him. Do we have a new word from God? It's the same thing, same thing over and over and over again. You know what we as the people of God come together for? It's not just to hear that broken record of God's judgment, but it's to hear the gloriously, majestically broken record of the gospel. The record that spins 
that same song. I realize there's some kids here that probably have no idea what a record is. The record that spins that same song of the gospel. And week after week it grows louder and louder. It grows more beautiful. Every week we hear this message and we are built up, as the Bible says, again and again in our most holy faith. So let's hear these reminders from the text. I'll give you three reminders first off from this first sermon, really. Punishment is as good as done. Punishment is as good as done. Here's what he says, verse 3. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses, mount, O horsemen. Take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and they have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down. They have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor a warrior escape. In the north by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this rising like the Nile? Like rivers whose waters surge, Egypt rises like the Nile. Like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots, let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt, in vain. You have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame. The earth is full of your cry. For warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. Punishment is as good as... As done. I want to remind you about Old Testament prophecy. A lot of times they speak of future events in past terminology. This is to show that when God says he's going to do something, it is as good as done. And though the language doesn't make it real clear from verse 3 and 4, it appears that Egypt is being told to mount up for a battle that they've already been defeated in. They've already been defeated. I remember as a kid, I had a poster on my wall in my room, among many other posters. This poster was a picture of the 1992 men's Olympic dream team. You remember the dream team? The dream team is widely considered to be the, the best basketball team ever put together in the history of basketball. And so you know that when they stood on the court with this other team, you could very well say, it's as good as done. We know, we know who's going to win this. And really, you're watching only to see how bad it is, right? You know, that's the situation when you attempt to go against God. 
When you're set on rebellion, this is your end. Terror on every side. Your stumbling and falling is as good as done. He uses words like dismayed, turned backward, beaten down, and fleeing. These verses scream of the decisive power of the Lord in judgment. I think he gives two reasons right here for this punishment. First off, arrogant unbelief earns it. Arrogant unbelief earns this punishment. Verses 7 through 9. You get the word picture right here. The Nile River rising. Why is that so important in Egypt? Because when the Nile annually rose, all of the land around it would be watered. It would be nourished. They would be prosperous. They would have everything they need. They would be strengthened. You know, we live in a culture, we live in a culture where arrogant ambition is idolized. I live my, my life my way, right? I'll make my mark on this world. I will build my own kingdom. And if you look back at your week, just this week, you could probably see all the ways that you have devoted yourself to your own personal ambition. God says, watch out. Watch out. That's the way of the world, and even we as Christians don't recognize it quickly to be sinful because we have been enveloped by that godless mindset. I'm going to make my name. I'm going to make my money. I'm going to make my legacy. I'm going to build my kingdom, my wealth. People are going to look at me, and they're going to want what I have, right? Friend, if the drive behind your goals and your decision is in, and your, your work and your family is an ambition for success or security or wealth or recognition, don't get too confident in that rising Nile. Because here's the thing. The Nile may rise, but it will return to its banks. The Bible tells us, Proverbs 16, pride comes before a fall, and if you walk in this kind of arrogance, you walk in this kind of arrogant unbelief, you will be brought low. I remember years ago, I co-labored in ministry with a man who taught me so much. He's a friend. He taught me so much about what the Bible calls a holy ambition. An ambition that is set on honoring God in all things and bringing glory to God in the decisions that you make and prioritizing the kingdom of God, right? Seek the kingdom first. All this talk about holy ambition. And then I watched him walk away from that in arrogant unbelief. And now he's convinced that if you're pretty much just a good enough person, you're going to enter whatever version of heaven you think exists. Arrogant unbelief. Oh, I've outsmarted God. I've outsmarted his revelation. Arrogant unbelief seeks to make yourself the center of all things, not surrendering to the sovereign God. 
arrogant unbelief earns it, this punishment. But then also, verses 10 through 12, perpetual sacrifice secures it. Perpetual sacrifice secures it. You notice right there in verse 10, Egypt becomes a sacrifice by the will of God at the hands of Babylon. It says also, verse 10, that day. Anytime you read in prophecy that day, you need to take note because it is showing us something more than, is, than what is just immediate in the text. That day tells us that Egypt's judgment is a foreshadowing of the final judgment. And on that day, he says, the sword shall be sated and drink its fill of their blood. So for Egypt, this is a gory physical reality. For the unbeliever, this is an eternal reality. You know whose sword is dealing the blows in the end? It's the sword of the Lord Jesus. You know where that sword comes from? Revelation 19. A two-edged sword that comes from his mouth. It proceeds from his mouth in order to strike down the nations. So folks, like we look at this sacrifice and we say, okay, they're going to suffer. Their suffering right here will be uh, terminal. It will come to an end. You know what the Bible says? The suffering, the judgment, the punishment that proceeds from God to those who reject the gospel, those who do not believe, it will never fully be satisfied. That's why it requires an eternity in hell. We know the verse, Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death. Spiritual death equals eternal death. Get this in your minds. There's always in the judgment of God, the, the, the state of, or the, the place of hell, it is always the state of dying. You know what Jesus says? Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And I point you to Luke 16, 24, the rich man and Lazarus. You remember this story, right? The rich man sees Abraham, he sees Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Are you struck by that, just like I am? Like of all the things that he could have asked for, of all the things that he could have pleaded for, a second chance. That would have been top on my list. Of all the things that he could have pleaded for, what does he plead for? Just give me a bit of relief. Nothing else. It's because he knows that this is his perpetual state. It does not stop. God's infinite holiness meets our infinite sin against his holiness. 
and requires infinite punishment. And so he says here in these verses, there's no healing for you. Try your remedies. Apply your medicine of good works, your medicine of earthly status, your medicine of education, your medicine of pleasure. Whatever meds you think will numb this pain, they won't work. This is coming for you. Punishment is as good as done. Secondly, second reminder, false gods will take you down too. False gods will take you down too from verses 14, but we may say 13 through 24 here. God's word. The word that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike down the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt, proclaim in Migdal, proclaim in Memphis and Tapanese. Say, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? Do they, they do not stand, excuse me, because the Lord thrust them down. He made many stumble and they fell. And they said to one another, Arise, let us go back to our own people, the land of our birth because of the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea shall one come. Prepare yourself baggage for exile. O inhabitants of Egypt, for Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. She makes a sound like a serpent gliding away. For her enemies march in force, and they come against her with axes like those who fell trees. They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts. They are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame and shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. Keep going. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, said, Behold, I am bringing punishment Upon Ammon of Thebes, Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings, upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him, I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. False gods will take you down too. My point here. And I think the point of the text, before you say, well, I'm not in this group that's going to be punished. I'm not, I'm not a part of, of the people who are not the people of God. Fast forward 35 years from this previous judgment, the Judeans that ran are included in this group. So when you set your face toward the things of the world, why be surprised when you're judged along with the world? 
I would say, friend, it is because you are of the world. When you go your way and somewhere down the line look back, you'll see you have settled very well in Egypt. And we all probably saw it before it happened. And most likely we said something to you, a word of caution, before you got all the way there. And then you look back with that regret that we talked about last week. Can I plug discipleship real quick, I suppose? You know, one of the best ways to keep you from going that way is people that are meaningfully involved in your life to keep you from going that way. Do you have people that see you drifting and they have the authority and you'll listen? Most people don't. I would say, men, we're the worst. You don't want to hear somebody say, hey, you were wrong. You're wrong going this way. And then you say, like the Egyptians, I'm just going to do what I want. We got to have those people in our lives that draw us back real quick when we start to go the way of Egypt. If you don't have that, just like they had the prophetic warning, friends, you will drift. You will drift. Those false gods will take you down too. If you're not guarded by God's word being faithfully preached and understood and applied in the context of God's people, the voice of Pharaoh and the promises of the queen of heaven, chapter 44, probably a fertility goddess, their voices will sound wonderful. So know now, however, that Pharaoh, verse 17, is called the, the noisy one who let the hour go by. He's the one who is all talk and no action. He's the one who fails in the moment of crisis. Longman says here, he says, this name is almost like what we would read in a political cartoon in the newspaper. If you go the way of false gods like Pharaoh, you're in for a humiliating trip. If you go the way of false gods, he's saying, you need to get ready, verses 18 and 19, pack your bags. This ain't no camping trip. This ain't a weekend retreat. This ain't going to be quick and easy punishment. You thought you could sidestep the discipline of the Lord by skipping the exile, but exile found you. Pack your bags. You're headed to exile either way. Along with these Egyptians, You've got a long, dreary future under the shadow of the mountain of God's judgment, Tabor and Carmel are referenced here, two of the biggest known landmarks to say, you're going to be suffering. You're going to be suffering in the shadow of these. Pack your bags. Prepare to lose everything dear to you, verses 20 to 24. Right here we have layered word pictures of Egypt. You see the progression? At first it's a beautiful heifer. Then we see a fatted calf. Then we see a serpent. And then a forest. So what began as something to be marveled at became a hopeless and helpless object of destruction. You also see a layered word picture for Babylon. The biting fly. The marching army lumberjacks, and then locusts 
what began as a, an annoyance rose to plague status. You know, we can't really sufficiently list the losses that are associated with rebellion against God. We might try to list the spiritual losses, not the least of which is our own soul. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? But in reference to these verses, I believe he's talking about even earthly losses. We've seen the obvious effects of sin. Broken families, irreparable relationships, health problems, job losses, compounding debt, ongoing hurt, destructive habits, self-induced depression and hopelessness, and the list goes on and on and on. You might respond to me saying, Pastor, well, there are some people who hate God, and yet they seem to have it all together. What about them? Here's your answer. God's judgment is not always what you expect. The earthly judgment of loss and suffering shines the light of salvation far brighter than the judgment of prosperity. You know, one of the greatest judgments of God against unbelievers or even his rebellious people is that he would just let you have what you want. If you're constantly amazed and dazzled by the glittering things of this world, you will never see the beauty of Christ. So for Egypt even, it seems that in his mercy, God is bringing judgment. I'm telling you this morning to be thankful for the judgment of God because in it we are able to see that he offers a way out, that he offers a way forward, a way of salvation in the end. So we could say, pack your bags. We could say, prepare to lose everything dear to you. But then based on 25 and 26, God still offers mercy. In this case, he says, afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. There's going to be another generation that will have the chance to repent and believe on this gospel that is being sent to the nations. There will be another opportunity. In the end, there will be, y'all see this? In the end, there will be, you heard the Isaiah reading early, earlier, there will be Egyptians gathered around the throne of Jesus because they repented and believed on him. Because they saw the holiness of God in judgment and they turned to Christ. There will be, as we read from Isaiah, there will be an altar in Egypt and they will be included in my people, is what God says. There's mercy. 
There's mercy in the midst of this terrible judgment. There's mercy for all nations. So our reminders, punishment is as good as done. False gods will take you down too. Thirdly, finally, this morning, God's tender voice remains. God's tender voice remains. Verses 27, 28. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away, your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But of you, I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So you notice here in these two verses, God's tender voice remains. It's not just Judah at this point. Remember, that's, that's his audience. It's not just Judah, but it is Jacob, my servant. It is all of Israel. And he's saying, he's reminding us right here as God's tender voice calls out, his voice calls us together to be one people. There will be one people, not based on ethnicity, not based on the blood of Abraham. Jeremiah proclaims God here will make a full end of the nations, yet he spoke mercy to Egypt. The interpretive key here is that Egypt as a nation will not last It's not going to be Egypt in heaven, and then over there you got the United States of America, and then over there you got Germany or whatever it may be. Do you not see? Like God will bring a full end to these because He is creating one nation. I would argue even ethnic Israel will not last. Why? How do we know that? New Testament, there is no distinction in Christ. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but a new people, true Israel, based on the blood of Christ, made up of all the nations, including Egypt. And right here we get the echo, the echo of redemption. Not only are these words, verses 27, 28, almost identical to chapter 30, verses 10 and 11, but do they not echo the purposes of God resounding throughout the scriptures, resounding throughout the history of redemption, the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That the triune God of Christian Scripture is a God who saves to the uttermost. His tender voice calls out his sheep, hear his voice. 
His voice tells us of the salvation that comes to us. A salvation that rescues us from far away. We may say his grace redeems. Is there anybody here this morning that is grateful that God saves from far away? You know where you were headed. And if you look back and you think, well, it wasn't that bad, well, I would question whether you know the grace of God. I would question whether you know the depths of your own sinfulness. His grace redeems from far away, from captivity, from the captivity of sin. And you know what our future is? Believers, he says right here, they will have quiet and ease. Man, that's something that sounds so wonderful to me, especially in those weeks and those days when I am just overwhelmed with the reality of not only my own sin, but the brokenness that characterizes our entire world. His grace redeems. He goes on to describe the fact that fear does not control the people of God, but that we will have that quiet future, that future of ease. His grace redeems and his grace sanctifies. As he continues to describe verse 28, the same fire of affliction that leads to the eternal punishment of rebellion is the same fire that makes God's people pure and holy. So if you have any hope of Enduring the consuming fire of God, your only way, your only way through this is faith in Jesus Christ. God's tender voice remains. We sing a hymn from time to time. His tender voice calling, O sinner, come home. As we conclude, this morning, if you are hearing the tender voice of God calling you to this salvation, calling you to this future, you hear his voice calling, and you are broken over your sin, I will tell you it's not too late for you. There are those in Egypt, there are those in Babylon. There are those in Moab and Philistia. There are those maybe down the street from you that have walked in their sin so much that they cannot be renewed. Hebrews 6, again, to repentance. But if you hear the voice of God and you know your sin, it's not too late for you. So today, if you hear his voice, then don't harden your heart. And I would say, forget what's going on around you. Stop trying to analyze thing, things that go on in Scripture and your response. Stop trying to figure everything out. This morning in our Sunday school class, we talked about how 
When we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it never begins with some sort of intellectual, oh, if I come to Jesus, I'll get this, but if I go this way, I'll get this. It's not like you sit down and weigh the pros and cons of Jesus. No, you come to Jesus when you see him for his beauty. So folks, if you this morning, if you can get over your own analyzing Jesus and the gospel or whatever it is or what other people are thinking, then maybe, just maybe, you can see Jesus and respond. Set your heart and your mind upon the glory and beauty and majesty of Jesus. And so I would ask, is there, is there someone that would confess today? I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to follow Christ. I need to follow Christ. I can't go on without him. He is beautiful to me. Let go of your excuses this morning. Stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith. Profess your faith. Be obedient in baptism. And then purpose to serve him the rest of your life. Maybe believer, there is a way that the Holy Spirit is convicting you, leading you to respond to God's word today. Let's do that in these moments. Pray with me.